This is Women's Tech Radio, Episode 5. A show on the Jupiter Broadcasting Network interviewing women in technology about their various positions and journeys. And today, Paige, I am wondering, have you ever had any last-minute projects that you've had to work on? Oh man, I had a doozy this week. Um, I got an email from a coworker at about 8 a.m. and said, hey, you know, how's that project going that we, you know, we've been talking about for a couple weeks? And I said, oh, it's good. I've got the entire day cleared off to work on it. Should get some good progress. And I got an email back right away that was like, just to give you some background, I need it by the morning. And oh. this, this was not a one-day project. And you thought you had how long? Like a couple weeks at least? Like at least, you know, probably to the end of the week, a couple more days. Um, so I started coding at 8 and I stopped at 1 a.m. Um, with, with a small break for some food. Sure. Um, and, uh, you know, it's definitely just sometimes how it rolls. Have but you, you got had, it done. Uh, just barely. Just barely. Wow. But um, have you had any kind of after hours stuff? Oh, of course. You know, lots of, uh, you know, 10 to 5 people say, you know, hey, we have this new employee. How come their email isn't set up? Where's their active directory? Like, you know, just all sorts of last minute things. And it's really interesting in the IT industry, you know, the client has huge expectations of drop everything and get this done for me. Yeah. Yeah. No, 10 minutes before closing. Can you you fix this giant thing that takes several hours? Yeah. And that's one thing about IT is that your job doesn't end at five. No. It just doesn't. Nope. Nowhere. It's like the permanent on-call situation. Sometimes. Today we're interviewing Emma Jane Westby, who's a recovering developer. Um, She's based out in England and we have some great talk with her about a couple different things, um, including Drupal, Scotch, and beekeeping. And before we get into that, I want to talk about DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easy way to spin up a cloud server. Users can create a cloud server in less than a minute, and pricing plans start at only $5 a month. That's 512 megabytes of RAM, 20 gigabyte SSD, one CPU, and one terabyte transfer. DigitalOcean has data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, and London. And the interface interface has a simple intuitive control panel, which power users can replicate on a larger scale with the company's straightforward API. And I have to agree with that. I was looking at it the other day, and they really do have a very simple website. Oh, no, I use it every week. Um, I spin up both my test servers are on, on DigitalOcean. If you use the code WTRDECEMBER, you can get a $10 credit, which is actually two months worth of, yeah. of service because yeah, it's only $5 awesome. a month. It's really cool. So check out their website and support Women's Tech Radio by using WTR December. And jumping into our interview, we start off by asking Emma to tell us a bit about what she's doing right now. In the background, I've actually just closed out FlowDoc, which is a chat application that I use with a team I'm working with right now, uh, which is building a website super 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 secret project that I can't actually tell you about, but it goes live next week. So we're in the middle of doing a deployment and I am a project manager with this particular team um, and sort of affectionately refer to myself as a recovering developer, which I think we'll get into a little bit later on. So you're a recovering developer. So that means at some point you were a developer. How did you kind of get into that path? We all kind of end up there differently, it seems. Yeah, for sure. So in 1994, Five. This is a very long time ago, I recognize. I was a summer intern with the Sierra Club of British Columbia. And at that time, um, one of the other volunteers showed the office staff a website that he had put together that had pictures of and I don't remember what the region was now, but it had these fantastic pictures and it was a way to show people 
what they were saving when they contributed to the Sierra Club and basically was a response I felt to some of the ecotourism pieces where you, you know, you truck everyone through these really sensitive environmental places and all of a sudden you're contributing potentially to the downfall of a, a naturally sensitive area. And it sort of stuck with me and I then went off to university and I did my degree in environmental science at the University of Toronto and um, kind of started looking at how computer simulations and how the the web generally could help to share information with folks. And I had a couple of part-time summer jobs uh, building web pages for university departments. And my first job out of school was as a project manager or an account manager for a web development firm which specialized in building websites for environmental organizations. And the developer that we had on staff, who was fantastic, um, every now and then would tell me that something couldn't be done, that technically I was asking for impossible things. And I didn't believe him. So I figured out how to become a developer. And I'd been building web pages um, just in HTML up to that point, um, but really started getting into, uh, at the time it was Perl and then PHP, uh, MySQL development, and relied on the internet to teach me all of these things that I had missed out from having a formal education in uh, computer science, but ultimately wasn't afraid of because I knew that what I was going to build was going to help these communities get their message across. Um, and, and I, you know, in some cases, Chris was right and things were technically impossible with the technologies we had available to us. And in other cases, I was able to, to um, be stubborn or naive or whatever the right term is and build these things that other developers thought were impossible because they were following rules that I, I just didn't know anything about. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a good That's story. great, actually. I get into it because I didn't believe you when you said no. <laughs> or I didn't. Or story I, of my life. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I think I have a similar similar journey. Just like people are like, you can't do that. And I was like, uh, I, I think I can. Yeah, I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> so, uh, so was that... Uh, kind of a really smooth transition for you to kind of go from being uh, like an advocate for environmental spaces and things like into development? Did you spend a lot of time? Did you find it like a difficult transition or? I was pretty lucky in that um, I had some really great cheerleaders along the way who were uh, accepting of the limitations that I had, but also knew how much to push me when I thought that things were too difficult for me. So I don't know that my transition was any more difficult than uh, someone else's would have been. But again, for me, having those champions of, like my personal champions, if, if I can call them that, really made a huge, huge difference. Uh, so it wasn't, again, I didn't, I wasn't exposed to the tech industry as early as others may have been because I was more initially focused on um, the education, like a, um, sorry, the University of Toronto had some really fantastic professors who sort of allowed me to explore this tech side, but from within environmental um, science classes. Um, and then when I started out as an account manager and a project manager, there weren't really a lot of expectations. So anything that I was able to accomplish technically was something that was applauded and championed. Um, the next job that I moved into was with a um, quasi-government organization and a, there was a lot of uh, flash game development happening and I opted to be the one person who wasn't doing game development 
and I looked more at uh, content management system development, building out applications with PHP and MySQL. And that was a little more frustrating sometimes because there was this assumption that I wasn't the person who had built these things, that you know, I was the new person, so clearly it was one of the other guys who'd done all this work. Uh, but mm -hmm. again, I had these really great champions who um, made it clear that I was the one doing the work and, and really pushed me and encouraged me to, to grow the technical skills that I was interested in growing. That's great. Yeah. And were, are there any resources that you use on a regular basis to keep your education going or just to check to see if things are possible? I like to refer to myself as community taught, and I really do think that the internet has provided a number of different communication channels for people. So I hang out a lot in IRC, although I'm um, probably less in the last year or two than I have been previously. Um, reading lots of websites, participating in conferences. I'm, uh, I love going to conferences as much as I uh, am a bit of an introvert and find them very difficult to, to just show up somewhere where I'm not going to know anyone. Mm -hmm. um, I love the social stimulation that comes along with it once I get over that initial kind of fear. So again, conferences, IRC channels, blogs, online communities have been um, hugely helpful to me. So you say you had champions. Did you have like a formal mentorship or was it more just like friends in coworkers kind of a thing? There wasn't a formal mentorship program, although I have participated in some since then. The Drupal community, which is one of the communities I'm most involved with, has a couple of different programs. The ones I participated in um, called Drupal Easy. Michael Anello, I think is his last name. And um, he's got a fantastic program down in Florida, although the mentors tend to be around the world. But I didn't really have anything formal I was in a couple of groups, like I was in, um, oh, what were they called? Were they called Web Girls? And then it changed to something else. They went through a few different names and I did participate in the Linux Chicks mailing list, but those were more um, female communities or um, gender is such a tricky issue because there right. were no physical requirements. It was more if you wanted to participate as a feminist. Um, so there were even, you know, in some cases there were some guys involved in the communities as well. They were feminist communities. Some were women only, but you just needed to self-identify as a woman for, um, for participation in the group. Mm -hmm. But I didn't have one-on-one -on -one mentorships through those programs. They were more sort of community mentoring. Sure. And Web Girls, that's W-E-B-G-R-R-L-S? That's right, yeah. yeah. And okay. then the Toronto chapter changed to something else. Okay. But I can't remember any, it went through a couple of different iterations. Sure. And did you find being involved with like kind of the female or feminist centric groups uh, more helpful than just kind of a general like hopping into Linux IRC or whatever? Was that impactful for you? I went through waves with it, to be honest. There were times when it was hugely beneficial just to, to sort of grow my confidence and to grow my willingness to jump into things in an online forum. I didn't have a lot of face-to-face uh, -face friends who used these sort of chat spaces and online um, places. So I, I found that they were helpful to develop my voice. Um, and certainly my writing career, I would say, has come out of these mailing list communities where you do a heck of a lot of typing. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I, I sort of grow further apart from them sometimes as well as, as I start to feel that the, the focus 
on feminist issues don't resonate with me as strongly. And then I come back around to them where I realize that, um, you know, sort of now that I'm uh, I'm all grown up with my two <laughs> books and writing a third and that uh, that it's important for me to be uh, uh, visible in these communities, even though I sometimes have a hard time relating to some of the conversations that happen because as new folks come in, of course, the same sort of frustrations are going to get aired over and over again. And it just, you know, sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't. Yeah, so sure. I step in and step out as I've got capacity to, to take part. I really, I really like the way you phrased it as like a space to build confidence mm-hmm. and to, to step from. And mm-hmm. you said you've written two books. Do you want to drop the titles? Sure. So the first one was Front End Drupal, and that was in 2008. And it was a, a front end developer's guide to making Drupal look a little bit better than what it did out of the box. And the second book that I wrote was in 2011, and it was called Drupal User's Guide. And it was more for site builders. And they, well, the first one is, I would say, not really all that useful anymore because it is focusing on Drupal 6. Uh, second one is definitely still relevant. And the book that I'm writing now, which is with O'Reilly, is called Get for Team, Learning Get for Teams. Uh, and I'm, I've written five of the 12 chapters, so I'm right in the thick of it right now. Um, and it will be focused on helping teams figure out how to use Git in a collaborative fashion. So it's not how do the Git internals work and what are all the commands you need to learn and memorize. And it's more, hey, you're going to work with your team. You need to set up a workflow. You need to set up a permission structure. You need to figure out how you're going to collaborate with this piece of software. I totally need that book. Yeah, that, is, that <laughs> sounds great. Like, uh, when, when do you think that'll be out? Because it yeah. seems like a good stocking stuffer. <laughs> uh, next year, unfortunately. Next year, yeah. uh, okay. Just, um, so just to rewind it, just to touch. If you follow along, uh, getforteams.com is where I'm posting that stuff. And just to rewind a touch, um, for people who don't know, can you soundbite us what Drupal is? Drupal is an open source content management system that I've been involved with for over a decade. And I first started with Drupal when I was building my own content management system. It's kind of like a rite of passage. If you are a developer, you need to build your own CMS at one point. And um, at the time they had, so this is like 2002, 2003, they had the best way of storing multilingual content. Most other open source content management systems could deal with any language, but only in one or two. So you could have a French English website, you could have a Spanish English website, but you couldn't have 10 languages all stored in there. So I took out all their uh, content structure and then wrote my own CMS. And two years later, I looked at what Drupal had done as a community and I looked at what I had done as a solo developer had a little bit of a cry, maybe had a shot of whiskey or three, (laughs) threw out all of my work and decided to participate in the Drupal community. And it's been amazing. I love them. Yeah, I've done some Drupal development and I have to say they're they're one of the most friendly and welcoming communities that I've participated in. Um, So I'm just going to throw this out since you mentioned the the shot of whiskey that I also see from your Twitter that you're a scotch drinker. I am a scotch drinker. Yes. It's a fun and interesting quality. And I was wondering if you could recommend a scotch. Yeah, sure. Um, So I will recommend different scotches depending on whether you are new to whiskey or you're an old hand at whiskey. I personally am fond of the Islas, which is uh, spelled I-S-L-A-Y. And they are particularly peaty and particularly smoky. So if you don't like licking the bottom of a campfire, I do not recommend (laughs) starting there. Um, 
A nice whiskey for people who are new to Scotch whiskies, I would say one of the Obens, or perhaps um, it is from Isla, one of the Beaumors. My one of my personal favorites, though, is the Lafrag, and that is definitely a bottom of the campfire whiskey. Wow. That sounds like a good recommendation list. <laughs> yeah. Um, we also see that you're a beekeeper. I'm really curious about that. I am. I am. Although I don't have hives right now. This summer, my partner and I moved from Canada to England. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, I could not bring the bees with me. Oh. Uh, so hopefully next summer we'll be in a spot where I can set up the hives again. But it's fascinating. Wait, I, you'll I be visit. in a spot? <laughs> uh, pun intended. <laughs> okay. Um, but they, I just, I love watching them. I love that I, I love the lack of control that I have. So I named my queens. Um, uh, <laughs> I started great. with Julia and then I, sorry, I started with Gloria and then Julia. And then I also had Lucia and Patricia. You can see my naming convention yes. perhaps. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my queens are named, and then in the hive, you've got a sort of at your peak, about 50,000 workers. So you don't name the individual working bees. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you do, you know, you develop this sort of weird attachment to a collection of insects that, you know, you can't pet them. You can't really do anything other than sit there and watch them. And you can't visit them too often. So I would say um, once a week in the peak season or every other week, you just go and look at them and, and watch what they're doing and you know maybe manipulate the hive a little bit. If you've got the indication that they're planning to head out, you can cut off parts of the, the frame to sort of discourage them from leaving and get them to stay. But it's hmm. kind of like project management or the herding cats analogy that really all you can do is watch and hope for the best. And do you get honey from it, or what is the oh, particular? Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> How often is that? Or like, I because I, I just really don't know anything about beekeeping. Um. So honey will come generally in times of um, times of heat. Bees prefer to be hot. Mm. So whenever you have like a, you can get a spring harvest if you get a particularly warm spring. Generally, though, it comes at the end of the growing season as they prepare for winter. Uh, local beekeepers will have sometimes varietals based on whatever was in bloom at that particular time, or they may have just sort of like a wildflower blend from summer or winter. Uh, different qualities in terms of the clarity and the uh, amount of pollen that's in it. I personally don't subscribe to the um, it'll fix your allergy problem, um, mm. although some do. I just think it's really tasty. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And a, um, a hive which is... Um, healthy and producing well established will generate about a hundred pounds in a year. Oh, wow. It's a lot of honey. Wow. I don't think I can go through that much. Well, I could try. (laughs) So I tended to give a lot of it away. Um, and I would, I wouldn't sell it, but I would use it to, um, bribe people to do things. Mm -hmm. So again, as a project manager, I can't control anyone, but (laughs) I can incentivize people. There you go. (laughs) Yes. They say non-monetary incentives are, are better usually. Yep. So you are working as a as a PM now, right? Yes. Do you, do you have like a particular methodology that you use, or like what are some of your trials and tribulations? I uh, have read a lot of books on Agile and Scrum and Kanban, and find it quite difficult to follow the rules exactly as they are intended. So we tend to, with whatever team I'm currently working with, figure out whatever is going to work best for this particular team and that I include the client in that team. Um, although I, I prefer something that's closer to a Kanban style 
in the sense of improving flow. So reducing artificial barriers and looking at, you know, what hurts in the process today? How can we make this smoother for you? How can I deliver the information, deliver the tickets in a way that's going to be ideal for each of the developers and for the team as a whole. And different people are motivated in very different ways. Some want to know, if I finish this ticket, then you'll be happy. And other people want, what is a range of tickets that I can choose from based on how I'm feeling today? Sometimes you want to you know, knock off a bunch of easy ones to increase your confidence. Sometimes you want to dig in and deal with a different problem. So it's, you know, it's that balance of, yes, there are guidelines out there. Yes, there are systems, but that doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect for each team at every point of the development stage. I think, I think just seeing the project management role as a person who removes barriers. Yeah. And, f- and flexibility, mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. flexibility. Well, this has been very enlightening. I feel like I know more about bees and scotch. And- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Which is fantastic. Yep. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for your time. If you would like to nominate somebody to be interviewed on Women's Tech Radio, or if you would like to be interviewed, you can email us WTR at JupiterBroadcasting.com. Or you can follow us or reach out on Twitter at HeyWTR. All the links from the show are in the show notes. You can go to jupiterbroadcasting.com and find Women's Tech Radio there.